welcome back to Laugh, Think, Blow Your Mind podcast, where we share and review with you the best bits of content from around the grounds. Now, I'm really excited to share this one with you guys. And I only realized in hindsight that there's actually a bit of a theme going on with today's episode. And that is that I'm sharing people with you who I'm assuming most of you, if not all of you, have never heard of them before. But I'm hoping that after this episode, you'll never forget them. As always, if you could please press follow on your podcast streaming platform. Uh, It really helps us out. We're only a small uh, podcast just starting out and it helps us get in front of more people. So if you could please press follow, that would really be great. Also, feel free to interact with us on the Q&A section on Spotify or feel free to get in touch via the email ltbympodcast at gmail.com or DM us on Instagram using the handle at ltbympodcast. Now, I wanted to touch on last week's episode. We did our first deep dive episode uh, when we reviewed the book, Excellent Advice for Living by Kevin Kelly. And I want to continue in this series of reviewing books. I've already got a few on the go that I want to do, but I want to admit something. I wasn't 100% happy with it in the end. Uh, I think there were many ways that I could have done a better job, and I'm going to try and make those improvements in the future. Now, don't get me wrong. I didn't get a single negative comment from anyone uh, or nothing like that. It's just looking back, I just think I could have done it differently and I'm here to get better and improve. So that's what I'll aim to do. All right, enough from me. Let's get into this episode. I really hope you guys enjoy this one. Uh, Let's get into it. The first introduction is to a guy called Paul Graham. And I'm guessing a lot of you will not know much about this guy, but I think you really should. So just as a tiny background, he has been very successful in the tech industry, He started a few businesses, and now because of his success, he gets to choose what he wants to do. And what he wants to do is thinking deeply about life and writing about it in essay form. Now, he shares these free on his website, which I will link in the show notes, but you could just simply Google Paul Graham essays if you're wanting to find some more. Now, I first learned of Paul Graham from David Senra, who hosts the Founders Podcast, uh, which you guys know I'm a big fan of. Then once I found out about him, I was hearing his name all over the place and for good reason. He's written a ton of these essays on different topics, but today I wanted to start us off with a short one, which I think might be his best, which is titled, Life is Short. I'm gonna read the whole thing, but before I do, I just wanted to point out that he uses the word bullshit to describe things that waste our time. Now, he debated whether to use this word or not, but in the end he did because he felt that intuitively, we all understand what bullshit is, and it's all gonna be different for everyone, so he thought he would just leave it at that. And I hope that doesn't distract from the excellent essay. Here it is. Life is Short, written by Paul Graham, January 2016. Life is short, as everyone knows. When I was a kid, I used to wonder about this. Is life actually short, or are we really complaining about its finiteness? Would we be just as likely to feel life was short if we lived 10 times as long? Since there didn't seem to be any way to answer this question, I stopped wondering about it. Then I had kids. That gave me a way to answer the question. And the answer is that life actually is short. Having kids showed me how to convert a continuous quantity, which is time, into discrete quantities. You only get 52 weekends with your two-year-old. If Christmas as a magic last, say, from ages 3 to 10, you only get to watch your child experience it eight times. And while it's impossible to say what is a lot or little of a continuous quantity like time, eight 
is not a lot of something. If you had a handful of eight peanuts or a shelf of eight books to choose from, the quantity would definitely seem limited no matter what your lifespan was. Okay, so life actually is short. Does it make any difference to know that? It has for me. It means arguments of the form, life is too short for X, have great force. It's not just a figure of speech to say that life is too short for something. It's not just a cinnamon for annoying. If you find yourself thinking that life is too short for something, you should try and eliminate it if you can. When I ask myself what I've found life is too short for, the word that pops into my head is bullshit. I realize that answer is somewhat tautological. Now, just I'm going to interrupt now. The definition of tautological is using two words or phrases that express the same meaning in a way that is unnecessary and usually unintentional. So the phrase advanced planning is tautological since when else are you going to plan something? So he's talking about the term bullshit there. Back to the essay. It's almost the definition of bullshit that it's the stuff that life is too short for. And yet bullshit does have a distinct character. There's something fake about it. It's the junk food of experience. If you ask yourself what you spend your time on that's bullshit, you probably already know the answer. Unnecessary meetings, pointless disputes, bureaucracy, posturing, dealing with other people's mistakes, traffic jams, addictive but unrewarding pastimes. There are two ways this kind of thing gets into your life. It's either forced on you or it tricks you. To some extent, you have to put up with the bullshit forced on you by circumstances. You need to make money. And making money consists mostly of running errands. The more rewarding some kind of work is, the cheaper people will do it. There has always been a stream of people who opt out of the default grind and go and live somewhere where opportunities are fewer in the conventional sense, but life feels more authentic. This could become more common. You can do it on a smaller scale without moving. The amount of time you have to spend on bullshit varies between employers. Most large organizations, and many small ones, are steeped in it. But if you consciously prioritize bullshit avoidance over other factors like money and prestige, you can probably find employers that will waste less of your time. If you're a freelancer or a small company, you can do this at the level of individual customers. If you fire or avoid toxic customers, you decrease the amount of bullshit in your life by more than you decrease your income. While some amount of bullshit is inevitably forced on you, the bullshit that sneaks into your life by tricking you is no one's fault but your own. And yet, the bullshit you choose may be harder to eliminate than the bullshit that's forced on you. Things that lure you into wasting your time have to be really good at tricking you. An example that will be familiar to a lot of people is arguing online. When someone contradicts you, they are in a sense attacking you, sometimes pretty overtly. Your instincts when attacked is to defend yourself. But like a lot of instincts, that one wasn't designed for the world we live in now. Counterintuitively as it feels, it's best most of the time not to defend yourself. Otherwise, these people are literally taking your life. Arguing online is incidentally addictive. As I've written before, one byproduct of technical progress is that things we like tend to become more addictive, which means we will increasingly have to make a conscious effort to avoid addictions, to stand outside ourselves and ask, is this how I want to be spending my time? As well as avoiding bullshit, one should actively seek out things that matter, but different things matter to different people, and most have to learn what matters to them. 
A few are lucky to realize early on that they love maths or taking care of animals or writing and then figure out a way to spend a lot of time doing it. But most people start out with a life that's a mix of things that matter and things that don't and only gradually learn to distinguish between them. For the young especially, much of this confusion is induced by the artificial situations they find themselves in. In middle school and high school, what the other kids think of you seems most important thing in the world. But when you ask adults what they got wrong at that age, nearly all say that they cared too much what other kids thought of them. One heuristic for distinguishing stuff that matters is to ask yourself whether you'll care about it in the future. Fake stuff that matters usually has a sharp peak of seeming to matter. That's how it tricks you. The area under the curve is small. The things that matter aren't necessarily the ones people would call important. Having coffee with a friend matters. You won't feel later like this was a waste of time. One great thing about having small children is they make you spend time on things that matter. Them. They grab your sleeve as you're staring at your phone and say, will you play with me? And odds are that it is in fact the bullshit minimizing option. If life is short, we should expect its shortness to take us by surprise. And that is just what tends to happen. You take things for granted and then they're gone. And you think you can always write that book or climb that mountain or whatever. And then you realize the window has closed. The saddest windows close when other people die. Their lives are too short. After my mother died, I wished I'd spent more time with her. I lived as if she'd always be there. And in her typical quiet way, she encouraged that illusion. But an illusion it was. I think a lot of people make the same mistake I did. The usual way to avoid being taken by surprise by something is to be consciously aware of it. Back when life was more precarious, people used to be aware of death to the degree that would now seem a bit morbid. I'm not sure why, but it doesn't seem the right answer to be constantly reminding oneself of the Grim Reaper hovering at everyone's shoulder. Perhaps a better solution is to look at the problem from the other end. Cultivate a habit of impatience about the things you most want to do. Don't wait before climbing that mountain or writing that book or visiting your mother. You don't need to be constantly reminding yourself of why you shouldn't wait. Just don't wait. I can think of two more things one does when one doesn't have much of something. Try to get more of it and savor what one has. Both make sense here. How you live affects how long you live. Most people could do better, me among them. But you can probably get even more effective by paying closer attention to the time you have. It's easy to let the days rush by. The flow that imaginative people love so much has a dark cousin that prevents you from pausing to save a life amid the daily slurry of errands and alarms. One of the most striking things I've read was not in a book, but the title of one. James Salter's Burning the Days. It is possible to slow time somewhat. I've gotten better at it. Kids help. When you have small children, there are a lot of moments so perfect that you can't help noticing. It does help to feel that you've squeezed every ounce of some experience. The reason I'm sad about my mother is not just that I miss her, but I think of all the things we could have done that we didn't. My oldest son will be seven soon, and while I'll miss the three-year-old version of him, I at least don't have any regrets over what might have been. We had the best time a daddy and a three-year-old can ever have. Relentlessly prune bullshit. Don't wait to do things that matter and savor the time that you have. That's what you do when life is short. 
I'm going to repeat that again. Relentlessly prune bullshit. Don't wait to do things that matter and savor the time you have. That's what you do when life is short. Okay, that's the essay. I hope you liked it. I hope you didn't mind me trying something a little bit different here as well. It's obviously not a podcast, but it's something that I really like. And I've gone back to multiple times and read this essay. And I, I recommend that you do the same. You might read it once, you might hear it here, but go back to this a few times. It really helps just to, to cement this into your mind. Okay, now I wanna introduce you to a new guy called George Mack. Now I went down a George Mack wormhole in the last couple of weeks and I started when I first heard him on the Modern Wisdom podcast hosted by Chris Williamson. It was a really good episode and during that episode they talked about the first time George had actually came on as a guest back on episode number 69. Chris was saying that this was the first episode of his to actually go viral. It had about, I think he said over 100,000 listens in a very short period of time, which at the time was you know, far and above what all the other episodes were doing. So of course I had to go back and listen to the first one as well. And it, I agree, it was really good. It was brilliant actually. And then I started listening to all of them. He's been on there six times. I haven't got quite through the six. And you don't have to listen to them in order as well. That's one thing I wanted to point out. They're all perfectly fine to enjoy uh, as standalone episodes as well. So here we go, let's get into it. The first clip talks about optimism. Just before we play that clip, I wanted to give you a bit of a background into why they're talking about it in this way. Now, do you remember the book called The Secret? Well, in this book, they said that the secret is to just believe in what you want and picture that becoming a reality and then you'll get it. And by visualizing and putting out positive vibes in the world, it will manifest what you want for you. And both George Mack and Chris Williamson believe this is total crap, saying that a starving kid in Africa can't conjure up food by just thinking about it. But they do point out that just because this was a load of crock doesn't mean the entire think positive or optimism movement is a waste of time. Our clip that we're gonna run right now is what George believes is the true value of optimism. This is what optimism is. It's to improve 1% every single day. So there's, have you heard of the cocktail party effect? Have I told you about that? No. So the cocktail party effect is me and you sat here like we've been in a few bars or restaurants at Terry's Barbecue down the road, right? And the background noise is a blur. It's me and you chatting, blur, 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 blur. But if somebody says voodoo events, which is Chrissy's old events company, or mentions the Northeast of England or whatever it is, suddenly that background noise, you go, what is that? Um, you immediately tune into it. So right now your brain is blurring out infinite inputs, millions of inputs that are happening right now. And you're focusing on what appeals to your reticular activating system. And I think the, the case for optimism is you're not going to manifest things into reality, but if you have a more optimistic frame, you're more likely to spot those opportunities. And I say market optimism as a 1% improvement every single day, and then you'll probably get more people to believe it. So I think it's like if you advertise creatine as going to fix everything. It's not. It's a small 1% improvement every day. But the actual difference is, is you may then have an opportunity that opens up that completely compounds. So I think James Clear has that graph where if you improve 0.1% every single day, if that compounds, that's a 36x, impro 36x improvement in a year. I think this is so true and also far more achievable. And I think we can all relate to this cocktail party effect in our lives. So oftentimes we hear something and go, wait, wasn't I just thinking about that the other day? And our brains pick up on this information or the signal out of the volume of noise that we hear daily. Most of it we ignore. So if we are looking to get better every day, we'll hear and pick up on opportunities to do this via this subconscious cocktail party effect. Our next topic is an attribute that someone can have or can be, and it's called high agency. 
I hadn't heard of this term before listening to this podcast, but they went into it in great depth and it was really interesting to me. The next day after listening about high agency, I was listening to an episode on the Founders podcast about James Cameron, who is arguably the best director of all time. And David Center, the host, was repeatedly using the term high agency to describe James Cameron. And I picked up on that because of this cocktail party effect. And I was able to interweave my new knowledge of high agency in relation to James Cameron, which I definitely agreed in that instance that it was true. So I just thought that was a really cool example of seeing that cocktail party effect in action. So what is high agency in a nutshell? So they describe it in the episode as the ability one has to enact change. For example, does life just happen to you or do you happen to life? So another way of saying this is a high agency person looks to bend reality to their will. They either find a way or they make a way. In contrast, a low agency person just accepts the story or their reality given to them. They're passive and they never question anything or think that there could be another way. So while looking for this definition, I found a really cool illustration which shows a man stranded on a deserted island with logs in front of him spelling out H-E-L-P, help. So waiting for someone to come rescue him. On the next illustration right next to it, uh, which is obviously talking about high agency person, they had the same man, but using the logs that were spelling help, using those logs to build a raft to get off the island. Just thought this was a really simple way to think about high agency versus low agency. So George in the podcast episode tells an amazing story about a prisoner of war escapee called Rudolf Verber, who through his action saved over 200,000 Jews lives. Now he didn't let his situation dictate his life. He decided to take control of it and make things happen. Let's have a listen to that story. So who are some of your favorite high agency humans throughout history? Going back to what I said earlier, what films aren't Hollywood making right now because they're making Transformers 12 or Fast and Furious 15? Um, the most underrated one in terms of how few people know and the most high agency individual is a guy called Rudolf Verber. So Rudolf Verber um, was in Auschwitz uh, as a teenager. Um, he was in a unique position where he was essentially in the operations of the train. So he would help Jews come off the trains, um, particularly women and children, and then they get exported to the gas chambers. One of the things like a meta principle I'd say today that I've kind of massively changed my mind in the last 24 months is when you, when you study history, you begin to understand things completely differently. So when I go into this Rudolf Verber story, the thing that people don't appreciate is they view it in hindsight versus at the time, the Nazis didn't announce to people, Hey, get on these trains and this is what's going to happen to you. That wasn't the case. And as a result, lots of other governments who were fighting the war against them didn't even know that was the case. There was a few people who suspected it was, but it's only in hindsight that we know that. So he then began to see he was one of the few people that knew who wasn't on the Nazi his team that could see this just killing machine that was happening. Um, and okay, so you can imagine here, talk about pessimism, has every reason to be pessimistic. He's seeing the worst of humanity that's ever existed. Talk about agency. He's literally a prisoner. And if you try and escape Auschwitz, they will, they will just essentially, if they find you, they'll put out a three-day dog squad. They will hunt you down and they will hang you in front of the everybody else just to show what happens to you. So he teamed up with Alfred Wetzler 
Um, actually, just to rewind for a second, the, the most harrowing thing about his story, going why you, why he could be so pessimistic and so low agency, is he meets a girl in the concentration camp called Alice Monk and loses his virginity in the concentration camp, and then she gets killed the next day in the gas chambers. And he kept seeing that. And again, talk about pessimism, talk about low agency, every single reason to be, but decided, you know what, fuck it. I'm going to try and escape. So he teamed up with Alfred Wetzler. And essentially what they did was there was some wood just outside the camps that they hid under these barrels of wood. Boom, the Nazis, as they're counting in at the end, they go, where's 44070? Because they take their names from them. So they just have numbers. Where are they? They released the, uh, the dog squad. And they hid under these barrels of wood, the most high agency part of it. They covered themselves in gasoline and tobacco so, so the Nazi dogs couldn't find them, even though they were right literally on the perimeter. There's one point where they almost find them and he has a knife because he's about to take his own life. Okay, they don't find them. Three days goes by. They haven't ate. They've kind of stayed awake. They escape. Um, they sprint as fast as they can, run all the way through Slovakia. No good run maps. through Slovakia in, in concentration camp uniforms where everyone surrounding them are Nazi sympathizers because that's what they put in place with no Google Maps, no Uber, no fi- no 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 WhatsApp to chat to the like the squad. You know what I mean? Like this is like the most harrowing thing. Where and if they get caught, killed immediately. Um, run. I think it's like a hundred and a hundred or so miles through. Get all the way there, and then the most beautiful part is kind of the few things that happens afterwards. So one, rather than write an incredibly emotional report which he should have done. Like they killed the girl he lost his virginity to, right? It's, it's dark. He could tell them like they killed the girl I love. They wrote the most objective McKinsey-like report of this killing machine that was Auschwitz. Um, and that people didn't believe him for quite a while. Again, rather than rest on his laurels, this guy goes and joins the Slovakian army and they say, we're not going to give you a pistol. We'll give you a machine gun because of like the kind of guy you are just based off his fucking story. Yeah. We don't um, give boys like you pistols. Yes. We give, we give them uh, machine guns so that's the kind of guy again just escape that but he's back on the front line the beautiful thing well there's a dark side and there's a beautiful side but the dark side is because going back to what i said earlier people didn't understand what was happening at the time it wasn't believed for a while until churchill and the pope ultimately got the report and then began to put more and more pressure on the nazis um so it was a big factor they recommend they reckon uh, they reckon he saved two hundred thousand lives just from his actions alone That was just an amazing story. They talked more about what attributes a person with high agency will likely have. And they were, one, the ability to hold two opposing thoughts at the same time in your mind. So in contrast, a low agency person might just think and believe what they're supposed to based on groupthink or an ideology. Uh, Related to this one, second point they made was a high agency person's opinions aren't predictable because they're not based on their other opinions that they have. So they're not predictable. So if you listen to our last episode in the book of advice from Kevin Kelly, he talked about this one as well, saying that if your opinions are predictable based on your opinions on other topics, you might be in the grip of an ideology. So basically, this is just saying that a high agency person is an independent thinker who thinks for themselves and has their own opinions. And finally, one of the last points that they made about a person who's high agency is that they're going to stand out like a sore thumb. They don't just go with the crowd. One way to see if you have a high agency person in your life is to think if you're stuck in a third world prison and you can only make one phone call to to someone to come and get you out, who's that going to be? Normally, that person's going to be a high agency person because they're going to have to be dependable, think outside the box, have a history of getting things done, and are going to get off their ass and come and get you. 
So that's high agency explained. And I wonder if you have the same experience like me and now can start to see these types of people everywhere. Before we move on to the next topic, I think it's worthwhile for me to quickly explain the term mental model as it's gonna get used a lot and it's something that George is really big on. Uh, in fact, Charlie Munger, who is sort of like the godfather of these mental models, he explains that mental models are the lattice work of the mind. So a lattice is a frame that has many cross sections which can be used to support growing plants and vines, etc. So a mental model for the mind is what you can use to support your own personal growth. So the first mental model I wanna raise with you is questions are the answers you need. And I agree, I was totally lost to start with as well. Uh, and that's okay. So have a listen to this clip and hopefully this mental model, which is questions are the answers you need, starts to make sense. Like one of my favorite examples, which is much more base level, is wheeled suitcases. So before, I think it was 1970s, everybody used to carry their suitcases everywhere. Eric Weinstein has that great bit of the smartest men at the time, the smartest physicist, used to get on the train or the plane carrying their, their suitcases. And the question is, is, well, where's the wheeled suitcases right now? There's one guy who comes along and goes, hold on, let's put some wheels on that. Jim Jeffries has a great bit in his new Netflix special where he says, feasibly, Neil Armstrong, as he was getting on the rockets, like was there carrying on his suitcases. <laughs> and goes, one day we'll put a rocket on these <laughs> without realizing. Okay, it's so and, and that's, again, going back to questions, questions are the answers that you need. Where is the wheeled suitcase right now? And that's a question that can keep you up at night, where it's so obvious, but everyone's just copying the crowd and being mimetic. So hopefully that makes a bit more sense now. It's questioning the status quo and not just going with what everyone else has always done. Uh, I thought the wheeled suit, uh, wheels on suitcases was, was a good example, but another one is the Frosby flop for high jump. So that's where they jump over the high, high jump bar head first with their back turned towards the bar, then legs and then feet come over last. And that wasn't used until the late 1960s. And this guy, Dick Frosby, I think his name is, uh, he pioneered it and he won gold in the 1968 Olympics. This is the only style now which is used for high jump and we can't imagine using a scissor kick or a different style these days. So he questioned the status quo and that's why questions are the answers we need. And I just love this. These next few mental models are from the first and second episode together. That was back on episode 69 and number 95 if you're interested in listening to the whole episode. The next mental model is thinking in inversion. Now, I've been a fan of Charlie Munger for a long time, so I have actually heard this one before because it comes from him. But let's listen to this mental mod model about inversion and see what you think. Charlie Munger appears to be kind of like... Should we patient, say Charlie is? Patient zero for it, yeah. So yeah, so Charlie is less, lesser known, but he um, is Warren Buffett's business partner who... Uh, uh, the guy who runs Berkshire Hathaway. So yeah, he's Warren Buffett's business partner and he's sort of been obsessed throughout his career of taking these ideas from the big disciplines. That's where I originally like got it from. Um, so like one, my favorite one from like Charlie was like just inversion, which was like, this is like quite a nice introduction. This is probably like the most simple one. This that you is an can example of a mental model. Yeah, example of a mental model, right? So inversion is almost comes from mathematics when you try and reverse a problem on its head. So for example, the best example I always use because it's so woolly, trying to figure out. It's, inversion's particularly useful for those woolly conversations or those woolly questions. So like happiness, right? What is, like, how do I become happy? 
Like people spend their whole lives like exploring that question, like what's this purpose I've got to find? Like, do I have to go to a spiritual retreat in India and sit and meditate for two years? But instead, Munger would just say, you just flip it on its head and go, how would I make a happy person depressed? And it's like quite easy, the answer's there then, right? So first thing you do is mess with their, mess with their sleep schedule. Like completely flip it on their head, have them sleeping late, have them sleeping like awful, have blue light coming in. So you do that. Second one you do is mess with their nutrition. Like you'd have them eating awful food. You'd immediately isolate them from their friends. You'd put them in a shit job um, and you'd just take away any form of meaning or hobbies from their life. So you look at those five things there. If you avoid all of those five, you've basically achieved happiness, right? You're 95% the way there. So instead of like Munger basically looks at it as, instead of trying to seek excellence, just focus on avoiding stupidity. He says that's the success of his career. Mm-hmm. Like he's never gone out to seek like excellence, him and Warren. It's just always avoiding stupidity. The mental model of asymmetry actions and decisions was another one that I really liked that they talked about. And I wanted to share that with you guys as well. So here it is. I want to talk about asymmetries. Okay. I know that asymmetry, I don't know if it classes particularly as a mental model, but it's something yeah, that yeah. you should. I, mean, I think you want to be as loose as possible with these mental models and however it works for you. So this almost comes from, like, yeah, of course it is. It comes from mathematics, right? Where it's like, it's a very asymmetrical relationship, like the inverse of symmetry, right? So a gr- way of looking at it is upside and downside risk, right? So asymmetrical risks are something where the upside is incredibly small and the downside is is horrific. Almost bottomless. Almost bottomless. Perfect example, texting whilst driving. Yep. Drink uh, drink driving. Like there's there's so many out there. Um, unprotected sex. Unprotected sex, yeah. Because let's say, well, let's go back to the texting whilst driving one. The benefit that you get is probably responding lol to a group chat, which you you not even remember that message in a Negligible. week from now. The, the risk that you have is being paralyzed for the rest of your life, ending up in prison, um, killing someone. Mm -hmm. So that's like asymmetrical risk, but there's a flip side of that, right? Which is like asymmetric opportunities. And we talk about this all the time. So you flip it on its head. Um, One of my favorite ones for like asymmetrical opportunities is um, just DMing people. Like anyone who you think is doing like something interesting, just go, hey, I love this. And it's particularly if you have a skill you can offer, just go, oh, you know, you could do X, Y, Z. And that's what, I guess that's how me and you are sitting here right now. That's how yeah. I met you, right? And then the that took me. So the downside there was 30 seconds of my time. Mm-hmm. Let's like, say nothing happened. I've lost 30 seconds. Yeah. If if it goes well, you've met like a new good friend, right? Yep. So the asymmetry, you can, yeah, you can see everywhere. Mm-hmm. I, I, asymmetrical opportunities and asymmetrical risks are something that I try and map a lot of my life onto as it is at the moment. Perfect example of that is someone tagged me in a tweet from Daniel Sloss saying that he was coming to Newcastle to do a live show. I replied and said, hi, Daniel, before you go and do your live show, do you want to come on a podcast? You've got a lad with a beautiful Northern accent uh, (laughs) and 5 million listen minutes over the last year. Are you up for it? And he replied and said, yeah. yeah. Downstream from that, me and Daniel speak on WhatsApp probably once a week now. I've got a good mate. I've probably got somewhere to stay when I want to go to Edinburgh. And we hit 50K views in mm-hmm. like a couple of weeks on that. And you're like, that was asymmetric opportunity. Yeah. What I really like about this one is these are everywhere. And you should try and eliminate or at least drastically reduce the ones where the downside far outweighs the potential upside. And focus and spend most of our time where the upside is huge and there is little to no downside. The next mental model is Occam's Razor, which you may have heard of before. Uh, Occam's Razor is a principle from philosophy where suppose an event has two possible explanations. The explanation that requires the fewest assumptions is usually correct. 
So another way of saying that is the more assumptions you have to make, the more unlikely an explanation. So I guess what they're saying is the simplest answer is usually the right answer. And while they were talking about this section, they took a little detour and talked and brought up Scott Adams, who is the creator of the Dilbert comic strips, because he had written an essay on writing, which they had both read and thought that was really good. Because, and the reason it was linked was Scott Adams talks about that the simplest way of explaining something is usually the best. So I wanted to take a small detour from our review of George Mack and the podcast that we're on now and go and read that essay to you. It's very short and it's really good and I think you'll get something out of it. The day you became a better writer. I went from being a bad writer to a good writer after taking a one-day course in business writing. I couldn't believe how simple it was. I'll tell you the main tricks here so you don't have to waste a day in class. Business writing is about clarity and persuasion. The main technique is keeping things simple. Simple writing is persuasive. A good argument in five sentences will sway more people than a brilliant argument in a hundred sentences. Don't fight it. Simple means getting rid of extra words. Don't write, he was very happy, when you can write, he was happy. You think the word very adds something. It doesn't. Prune your sentences. Humor writing is a lot like business writing. It needs to be simple. The main difference is in the choice of words. For humor, don't say drink when you can say swill. Your first sentence needs to grab the reader. Go back and read my first sentence to this post. I rewrote it a dozen times. It makes you curious. That's the key. Now I'm going to go back to that first sentence just for a second. I went from being a bad writer to a good writer after taking a one-day course in business writing. I couldn't believe how simple it was. I'll tell you the main tricks here so you don't have to waste a day in class. Back to the essay. Write short sentences. Avoid putting multiple thoughts in one sentence. Readers aren't as smart as you think. Learn how brains organize ideas. Readers comprehend the boy hit the ball quicker than the ball was hit by the boy. Both sentences mean the same, but it's easier to imagine the object, the boy, before the action, the hitting. All brains work that way. Notice I didn't say that is the way all brains work. That's it. You just learned 80% of the rules of good writing. You're welcome. I hope you didn't mind that little detour. Now we're going to get back into the episode. The next mental model I wanted to share with you is one that I thought was fantastic, especially for helping us make decisions. It's the concept of asking which decision is going to bring about the most amount of luck. The reason I have is if presented with two situations, choose the one that will bring about the most amount of luck. And I'd say this is, if I had to give, I always say every episode, if I had to pick one mental model, then I'd pick a different one each fucking episode. Well, that's fine. But this, I guess it, I guess as I get older, these things yep, change, right? Change. And I'd say in terms of actual output towards me and what I do, and again, I don't think I've done anything particularly special yet um, or in general, in that this one by far has the most amount of impact. So I'll, I'll give you like more practical examples of this. So, uh, quite recently, um, a guy was messaging me and we were supposed to go for a drink and he was like, oh, should we go, oh, should we go for a drink tonight or should we delay it? And I was like going, I remember just caught myself and I was going, what's going to bring about the most luck here? Me going and sitting at home and just chilling out and doing nothing or going for a drink with a like-minded guy I've never met before 
and seeing what happens. And of course I was like, well, definitely the latter is. But even though naturally I was going, I just, I'm tired, I want to go home. I was like, okay, let's just put the luckiest option. As a result, lots of stuff came off the back of that and constantly looking for where, okay, I've got two potential decision trees to go down here. Which one do I think is going to bring about the most amount of luck and constantly doing that. One of my favorite examples is my, my mates, uh, James and Reese, where they were at a Drake concert. Hmm. And the MEN, uh, th- those two guys are massive Drake fans, and they were both in the toilet. So my mate James is proper into like sneakers. He's one of the sneakerheads. And he sees a, a massive guy um, in the toilets, and he says, mate, I love your shoes. And he just, just randomly compliments a stranger. So yeah, they sit, are complimenting him on his shoes, and they get chatting back and forth. And anyway, that guy turned out to be Drake's DJ. And he goes, do you want to come back VIP with us and hang around with Drake and like Kevin De Bruyne and Paul Pogba and Odell Beckham Jr.? And they went out of... Like the A-list of the A-list of the A-list. I'm not saying that's something you want to aspire to, but that's a fucking cool story, Pretty right? Nice. And a great night. And as a result, whenever Drake comes to town, they text that DJ and he sorts them out. And you go, that just came down to compliment the guy in his shoes. Mm-hmm. And I go, but let's say you were sat there and sometimes people don't want to chat to a stranger or certainly don't want to compliment a stranger. Mm-hmm. But what's going to bring about the most amount of luck? Me just keeping that thought in my head mm-hmm. is not going to bring about that much luck. Whereas if I go, hey, mate, like this, da 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 of course he might just say, all right, mate, cheers, bye, be a dick. You've not lost anything. <clears throat> but the potential amount of luck that's constantly existing, I, I always think about it, and you only see this stuff backwards, is that, you know, the whole sliding doors phenomenon, where you look back and you go, oh, if I wouldn't have gone out that night where I ended up meeting my, this would have the mother of my kids, yeah. imagine if I would have just gone, oh, I'll sit at home that night. Mm. So we're constantly having these sliding doors. Even as we're chatting right now, mm. there's sliding doors moments going on but you don't see them at the time. You can only see them looking backwards. Mm. So the sliding doors are invisible when you go through them, mm. but constantly visible when you look back. Yeah. And I think the only, I really say so much of it comes down to luck. Therefore, just having some default raises in place of going, what do I think is going to bring about the most amount of luck here? And just doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something I'm trying to get better at anyway. So this same thing actually happened to me when I met my wife. It was a Friday and all day at work, I was feeling great, feeling really positive. I just had a feeling that something good was going to happen. And I kept actually telling people that I had a good feeling about today. Anyway, the day went on and nothing of note had happened, but I didn't want to just go home and put on the footy and be done with it. So I decided to text my mates and see if anyone was heading out. Anyway, I got my housemate to drop me off into the city and I found my mates. And while I was there, I saw this girl who I'd actually seen before because she was a friend of a friend, but I didn't know her. I asked my mate, do you know her name? He said, yeah, he told me her name and he laughed at me saying good luck because he just knew that she was out of my league. But because I had that feeling all day, I decided to muster up the courage, go over and say hi. And I was I was talking to her and in my head, I was saying I wanted to marry her. Now, if I had said that out loud, she would have rightfully run for the hills. But a year later, we were engaged. A year after that, we got married. We've now been married for over 10 years, have two boys and got another one on the way. And it's, it was this invisible sliding doors moment, as George talked about on this clip. But looking back, it's so visible. I could have easily just stayed at home and watched the footy with my housemate and had an uneventful night, but I chose the option that produced the most amount of luck without having a clue about this concept at the time. All right, moving on. There were a lot of mental models covered in the three episodes that I listened to. And so what I'm going to do now is do a rapid fire run through of the next ones that I thought deserved a mention. The first one was recency bias. We tend to value what is most recent, 
but there was this model that they talked about called the Lindy model, which suggests that if it's been around for a day, it might last a day. If it's been around for 100 years, then it's likely to be relevant for another 100 years or more. So think about a tweet versus a classic book. A tweet might have the life of a few hours of relevance, whereas a classic book has been around for 100 years. So it, we should not undervalue the classic book's lessons as it's lasted the test of time. The next one is extreme ownership, which is a concept by Jocko Willink, who was a Navy SEAL and one of the toughest and disciplined men in the world. He says, take an extreme ownership of everything you do. Take 100% accountability for the good, but especially for the bad. Next, stating your opinions publicly. This is from an investor called Guy Spear, who I think got it from Charlie Munger. Anyway, Guy says that he won't state his opinions publicly anymore. In his case, his opinions are mainly about stocks and investments, but this applies to anything. So as stating it publicly, that opinion becomes part of your identity in a way, and it makes it much harder to change your mind. And you start to defend your opinion in a way that makes it much harder to change your mind in the face of counter information that you might receive in the future, rather than considering your stance with that new information and changing your mind if needed. So consider that one. Next is design your environment. So this applies both to objects and to people. So if you have a lot of negative people in your environment or they're not helping you, then change your environment. So the same thing with objects like your office, your office space. So if your office is a disorganized mess, then it's unlikely that you're gonna be able to produce good work. So change your environment. Next, availability of information and filter bias. So this has to do with the algorithm that we experience on YouTube or social media. So if we like one thing, then we typically get sent more of that in our direction and that can cement our opinion. But we aren't seeking or being exposed to the other side. So acknowledge this and change the algorithm and find new things and seek different views. Finally, systems versus goals. So goals are the end game. And we move on quickly once we achieve goals, but systems are what get us to the goals in the first place. And we can achieve, if you put these systems in place, you actually achieve that every single day. And that's the hit of dopamine that our brain needs when we achieve that each day, rather than only getting the dopamine hit at the end when we reach our goal, because as I mentioned, we move on too quickly to the next thing. So the next couple of concepts weren't mental models per se, but they talked about them and I thought they were really good to raise here. And I'm gonna do it again in a rapid fire type of way because I'm really not trying to drag this on too long for you guys. The first one was worrying about other people's opinions because they aren't thinking of you. You're an NPC, which is a non-player character, which is something used in gaming to explain the side characters of the game, which you can interact with, but really have no influence over the game. So think of this as the extras in a movie. So you are an NPC in their one player game is what they said. Basically, get over yourself. Another way that they said this, I think Chris said this one was, we would care a lot less about what people think about us if we knew how rarely they did. It's a good one. Compounding of good habits was the next one. And again, this compound lesson, which I'm hearing everywhere, I'm experiencing the cocktail party effect because I am a big believer in compound and I'm hearing it in so many different aspects of life, not just in finance. So 
With good habits, they compound, which is the small benefits aren't seen day to day or even much at the beginning. But over time, you look back and you can't believe how far you've come. So just remember the concept of compounding works not only in finance, but in in almost everything. Another that they talked about, which was really, oh, I thought this was great, that most people die at 25, but only get buried at 75. So this alludes to our milestones in life tend to stop at around age 25. Well, that was the age which they used. So this is when the grind of life takes over. And as I said, it's not a perfect age, but you get the point. So from age zero to 25, you have so many milestones, school, sports, your first kiss, you graduate university or college, you get your first job, get married, buy a house, you know, so maybe that takes to age 30 or 35 for this to happen, but you get the point. At some point, we get stuck in the grind of life. And the advice here is to try and create rituals and milestones and celebrate them often. Have a purpose higher than yourself and think about your why. I'm currently reading a book which I'm going to review on the podcast called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And in there, he quotes a a line from Friedrich Nietzsche. I don't know how to pronounce his name very well. But the quote is, he who has a why to live can bear almost any how. Finally, I really liked a concept that George came up with, which was what is ignored by the media today, which will be studied by historians tomorrow. So he, does, he doesn't love the name that he's given it. He's, it's a work in progress, but it's definitely worthwhile thinking about. So for example, think about our handling of the pandemic, the overreach from the government and the strange cult-like obsession with Big Pharma, which was, so it was all very strange. So this will be studied by historians almost certainly in a hundred years time, but right now it's being ignored. Another example that that used was the current friendship recession that we're in. So back in the 1990s, only 3% of people reported not having a close friend. But now it's actually up to 15%. And no one's talking about this, but they will potentially be studying this in 100 years time. Okay, so that's gonna do it for George Mack. I still have another three episodes to get through at some stage, and I would really like to go through those on a future episode, but I might leave that for a little while. So now we move into the final segment of today's podcast, and that is to try and make you laugh. And I wanted to share that I've been really struggling to find funny podcasts consistently that are something that I'm wanting to include on here. So I thought about it, and why not just introduce you guys to comedians by sharing their clips and highlights of some of their best bits, and uh, hopefully that introduces you to new comedians, and if you like them, you can go and check them out. So today I'm going to introduce you to a hilarious, but I'm sure not a well-known Australian musical comedian. So Tim Minchin is his name. And if you've seen him, he's hard to forget. Firstly, he's amazing musically. He's so talented. He plays the piano like an angel and he can actually sing as well. So he normally wears no shoes on stage, has long red hair with dark eyeshadow, black um, painted fingernails. So he certainly is unique. So the song I'm going to share is called Prejudice and has a fantastic misdirect. But I don't want to give anything away. So here is the song from Tim Minchin called Prejudice. This act gets pretty serious. And starts with a song about prejudice. (laughs) 
Age of Prejudice. spoken society there is a word that we still hold taboo a word with a terrible history of being used to abuse oppress and subdue just six seemingly harmless letters arranged in a way that will form a word with more power than the pieces of metal that are forged to make swords of G's, an R and an E, an I and an N, just six little letters all jumbled together have caused damage that we may never mend, and it's important that we all respect that if these people should happen to choose to reclaim the word as their own. It doesn't mean the rest of you have a right to its use So never underestimate The power that language imparts Sticks and stones may break your bones But words can break hearts Jeez, unless you've had to live it Even I am careful with it Spell it out again. Yeah. Only a ginger can call another ginger ginger. Only a ginger can call another ginger, ginger So listen to me if you care for your health You won't call me ginger unless you ginger yourself Only a ginger can call another ginger, ginger When you are a ginger, life is pretty hard Here's a ritual bullying in the schoolyard The kids call in your ringer or fan of pants no invitation to the high school dance But you get up and learn to hold your head up You try to keep your cool and not get fed up But until the feeling of illness truly let up Then the word is as and as I know Don't you know that only a ginger Can call another ginger ginger Yeah, let me hear the people sing Only a Change, we just might come unhinged if you don't have a fringe with the least attention to the ginger. Only a ginger can call another ginger ginger. Now listen to me when I'm looking for sympathy, just because we're sensitive to UV. Just because we're pathetically pale, 
We do alright with the females Yeah, I like to ask the ladies round for ginger beer And soon they're running their fingers through my ginger beard And dunking my ginger nuts into their ginger tea, yeah And asking can they call me ginger And I say, I don't think that's appropriate Cause only a ginger can call another ginger ginger And all the ladies, they agree it's a fact Once you gone, ginger can go You only can call another ginger ginger Here you go, you funky mother Fucking Ginger you can call us bozo or fire truck, fire truck, fire truck. You can even call us carrot top or blood nut, blood nut, blood nut. Yeah, you can call us matchstick or tampon, tampon, tampon. <laughs> but fucking with the G word is just not on. If you're a ginger phobe and you don't like us. We'll stand up to the fight if you wanna fight us But if you cut yourself, you might catch gingivitis So maybe you should shut your funky mouth Only a ginger can call another ginger ginger Yeah, pretty Only a ginger can call another ginger So if you call us ginger, you can't whinge If you're injured, if you don't have a tin of the ginger in your mittens Call me ginger You call me another ginger Ginger And you know my kids will always be clothed and fed Cause Papa's gonna be bringing home the gingerbread And they'll be pretty smart because they'll be well read And by red I mean red And the other one are only a ginger You can call another ginger can sneak up on another ninja So that's it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I really hope you liked it. If so, please give us a follow on your podcast app. And until next time, thanks for listening.